other than the one year that I had living in Spain, I've basically lived my entire life in the United States. And so the vast majority of the music I listen to comes from the United States. Of the 26 artists I've spent a considerable amount of time discussing on this podcast, only four of them find their origins outside of the U.S. And that includes Carlos Santana, who did grow up in Mexico but pursued his music career in San Francisco. One city in the U.S. whose music I've spent a good bit of time talking about is Seattle. Don't worry, I won't give another filibuster-length rant about the amazing bands from that part of the country. Instead, I want to focus for a second on the geography of the Emerald City. This is a geography podcast now. Sorry, I don't make the rules. Anyways, Seattle sits approximately 140 miles to the south of the Canadian border. In 1993, while Seattle was in the midst of grunge's heyday with Pearl Jam's verses and Nirvana's In Utero dominating the charts and charming critics, Canada's top artists contrasted quite starkly with alt-rock. This is the story of that artist. In the early 90s, as a teenager, Robin Sparkles pursued a career in modeling. However, she quickly discovered her potential as a recording artist. In 1993, Sparkles released her debut single that became a chart-topping success across Canada titled Let's Go to the Mall. An innocent bubblegum pop tune, the song connected substantially with Canada's youth, leading to Sparkles' tour of major Canadian malls. Her mall performances elicited comparisons to American teen pop sensation Tiffany Darwish, better known just as Tiffany, whose number one single, I Think We're Alone Now, prompted her own mall tour in the U.S., Sparkles springboarded off the success of her debut single shortly after with her second single, Sandcastles in the Sand. A powerful ballad, Sandcastles in the Sand, showcased Sparkles' emotional side and growth as a lyricist. Following the success of these two singles, Sparkles' performance schedule increased and the grueling nature of touring took a toll on her and led to a shift in her artistry. Coinciding with the ramifications of stardom, Sparkle's unrequited love for another Canadian celebrity turned into an obsession. In 1996, Sparkle's released her third and final hit, but due to the change in her musical style, which shifted from bubblegum pop to a more aggressive form of post-grunge, she changed her stage name to Robin Daggers. The artist described her heartbreak in the angsty love song, P.S. I Love You, which quickly upon release became known as the moment that grunge came to Canada. While the song charted and sold well, her record company did did not appreciate the sharp change in direction and cut ties with her. She ended up moving to New York, successfully pursuing a career in journalism. However, Canadians always wondered who was the subject of that angry piece of music. They heavily debated which Canadian celebrity with the initials PS could have inspired such a dramatic tune. Now, as probably the majority of y'all realized as soon as I began describing the Canadian singer, Robin Sparkles is a fictional character from the CBS sitcom, How I Met Your Mother, but she's not completely made up. The story of a young female Canadian singer that began as a bubblegum pop star that gained attention for her change in sound and style after the release of an angsty and grungy love song is completely real and inspired the creation of the character Robin Sparkles. That singer, of course, the queen of alt-rock angst, the great Alanis Morissette. I'm Dove Brenner, and this is Hot Cakes from a 90s Stand, and in perhaps the most difficult signature song episode, I will ask the question, which is Alanis Morissette's?
Alanis Morissette was born along with her twin brother, Wade, on June 1, 1974, in Ottawa, Ontario, the capital of Canada, to two educators, Alan and Georgia. Morissette's musical talents appeared quickly. She began playing piano at six years old and started writing songs when she was nine. At 12, Morissette entered the entertainment industry, appearing on episodes of the Canadian children's comedy sketch show, You Can't Do That on Television, which Nickelodeon broadcasted. Morissette used the money earned on that program to fund her first piece of recorded music, Fate Stay With Me, a synth-pop tune that gained the attention of the record company MCA Canada, which signed her to a record deal. In September of 1990, Morissette entered Distortion Studios in Ottawa to record her debut studio album with producer Leslie Howe at the helm. Howe made a name for himself in Canada through his production with the Ottawan 80s pop group One to One. Prior to the 90s, Howe had already produced four top 40 hits on the Canadian charts for the group. Morissette released her debut, simply titled Alanis, on April 16, 1991. I'm not too well-versed in the album's style, but I suppose I would call it somewhere between bubblegum pop and dance pop. Listening to the album, it reminded me of Straight Up by Paula Abdul. So if that's your cup of tea, give it a listen. Anyways, the album became a moderate success in Canada, peaking at number 28 on the Canadian album's charts, selling roughly 100,000 copies. The album, Alanis, also featured three singles that reached the top 40 on Canada's singles chart. Walk Away, the most notable of these, because the music video featured a young actor named Matt LeBlanc, who played Morissette's boyfriend. LeBlanc obviously became a household name, playing Joey Tribbiani on the legendary hit NBC sitcom Friends. Pour one out for Matthew Perry, by the way. On October 20th, 1992, Morissette released her second studio album, Now Is The Time, again with Leslie Howe's production. The album maintains the accessible dance-pop feel of her predecessor. The album took a step back commercially as the record only sold half as well as Alanis and failed to chart on the Canadian album's charts. Following the release of Now Is The Time, with the American city of Los Angeles on her mind, Morissette packed her bags and left Ottawa for the more cosmopolitan city, Toronto. She seeked to continue her music career, however, MCA dropped her from the label. Morissette took advantage of the lack of label oversight, essentially spending her waking moments writing new songs with complete artistic freedom. In early 1994, Morissette took that next step of heading to Los Angeles, California. Upon arriving in SoCal, Morissette started writing music with a bunch of people, throwing stuff against the wall to see what would stick, so to speak. Nothing really stuck, though. That is until she met Glenn Ballard. When Morissette walked into his studio in March of 1994, Ballard was already a seasoned songwriter and producer within the industry, having worked with established artists such as the previously mentioned Paul Abdul, the Pointer Sisters, Teddy Pendergrass, and most notably Michael Jackson. In fact, he has a songwriting credit on one of Jackson's most famous singles, Man in the Mirror. Morissette enjoyed Ballard's intellect and his desire to discover who Morissette truly was as an artist, as he did not view her as the dance-pop teenage idol that, wrote her, that writers and producers back in Canada pigeonholed her as. While the duo collaborated heavily on both music and lyrics on the first few songs, such as the future mega-hit Ironic, Morissette ultimately became the main songwriter on the remaining tracks, although they still co-wrote all the music. Once the duo felt confident in their compositions, they began recording. Morissette impressed Ballard with the efficiency in which she completed her vocal tracks, usually in just one or two takes. 
Ballard also noticed that Morissette's voice had a certain quality that he referred to as, quote, nonverbal intention, which he felt sounded like a cry. The recording engineer that Ballard hired, Chris Fogel, noted that while working on the project, they listened quite a bit to the Irish rock band The Cranberries, which influenced Morissette and her crew to opt for an edgier rock sound, which obviously couldn't be further from the sound of her two previous records. By the end of 1994, Morissette and Ballard had recorded more than a handful of songs, but hadn't found a label. On top of that, Morissette had to return to Canada, leaving the future of the project in a precarious state. Once Morissette got back to L.A., they got in contact with all the major labels, but they couldn't get any one of them to bite until one day while in the studio, writing in her sweatpants, Alanis and Ballard got a call from a lawyer within Morissette's circle who urged them to come meet with him at Maverick Records, the label that Madonna co-founded. Morissette was reluctant to attend the meeting since she didn't feel sweatpants would be the adequate attire for a meeting of that magnitude. She went anyway. The rep from Maverick Records they met was Guy Osiri, who currently manages Madonna U2 and the Red Hot Chili Peppers. They played Osiri a demo of a song they had been working on called Perfect, and within 30 seconds, he was on board. Morissette felt the reason that Osiri connected with her music rather than the previous record labels lended itself to Osiri's youth. He wasn't even 25 at the time, whereas the other record executives they met with were from a much older generation. After Maverick Records signed Morissette, the label facilitated only small instrumental additions to what they had already recorded. The most notable example, the guitar and bass on the album's first single and second track, You Wanna Know. Osiri summoned his friends Dave Navarro and Flea of the Red Hot Chili Peppers to contribute on that track. On June 13, 1995, Alanis Morissette released her third studio album and international debut, Jagged Little Pill. It's weird saying her third studio album because listening to Jagged Little Pill versus her previous albums feels like a completely different artist. While the album's predecessors could be described as tweeny dance pop, Jagged Little Pill is as visceral as it is intellectual. It feels like a rebirth, a creative catharsis from a woman whose artistry had been compromised and contained. The album blends alternative rock, soft rock, pop, and folk. In just 57 minutes, Alanis Morissette becomes Bob Dylan, Janis Joplin, and Eddie Vedder, all in one fell swoop. The album became a blockbuster success. With 18.7 million copies sold in 1996, it was easily the highest-selling album that year. And to date, Jagged Little Pill has sold over 33 million copies, making it the 13th highest-selling album of all time. In addition to hitting number one in her country of residence, the United States, the album also hit number one in a bunch of other countries, including Australia, Belgium, Finland, New Zealand, and the UK. The record featured six singles, five of which became international hits. In the United States, two singles, Ironic and You Learn, peaked in the top 10. In the UK, those two singles hit the top 40 in addition to three others, You Ought to Know, Head Over Feet, and Hand in My Pocket. In her home country of Canada, all six of her singles hit the top 10, including four number ones. So obviously, massive amounts of people from all across the Western world fell in love with Jagged Little Pill. Several of those people turned out to work as music critics. Although the record's commercial success easily fared better than its critical, it certainly didn't get panned. Stephen Thomas Erlewine of All Music awarded Jagged Little Pill 4.5 stars out of 5, characterizing Morissette's coming-of-age ambition as, quote, surprisingly effective 
an utterly fascinating exploration of a young woman's psyche. Steve Hochman of the LA Times gave the album three and a half stars out of four, praising the album's lyrical diversity, noting, quote, This young Canadian hippie hopper who one minute preaches peace and love, the next is telling you, in no uncertain terms, to buzz off. Additionally, he compared Morissette's performance on the record to acclaimed singer-songwriters Liz Fair, Sinead O'Connor, and John Lennon. The legacy of Jagged Little Pill is as strong as the force in which Morissette digs her teeth into her lower lip before she ends the second verse of You Ought to Know. In 2020, Rolling Stone listed the album as the 69th greatest of all time, fitting considering the lyric, quote, You took me out to wine dine 69 me, found its way on the album's fifth track right through you. Sorry about that little joke there. I'm very mature. Anyways, in 2000, following a vote of 200,000 people, British music critic Colin Larkin ranked the album at number 51 in his book of the greatest 1,000 albums of all time. Jagged Little Pill was popular at award shows too. As did our friends Carlos Santana and Rob Thomas in 2000, in 1996, Alanis Morissette swept the Grammys, winning four awards, including Album of the Year. Following the success of her international debut and its equally successful supporting tour, which featured future Foo Fighters drummer, the late Taylor Hawkins, on the skins, Morissette did a six-week pilgrimage to India along with her mother, aunts, and a couple girlfriends, which she dubbed, quote, the goddess trip. There, Morissette volunteered at Mother Teresa's hospital and trekked through the Himalayas. In early 1998, the world got a glimpse into the future of a post-jagged little pill world for Morissette as she wrote and recorded the symphonic rock masterpiece Uninvited for the 1998 romantic fantasy film City of Angels starring Nick Cage and Meg Ryan. The song was a critical and commercial blockbuster, selling 7 million copies, winning two Grammys in 98, and it charted in several countries despite having never been released formally as a single. Fun fact, Uninvited isn't even the most popular song from that movie's soundtrack that would belong to Iris by the Google Dolls. Also fun fact, when I first typed out Google Dolls, I instinctively wrote Google. Morissette's presence within popular music continued collaborating with both Dave Matthews Band and Ringo Starr on their respective studio albums released in 1998. However, the most notable moment of Morissette's post-Jagged Little Pill career occurred on November 3rd of that year when she released her second studio album, Supposed Former Infatuation Junkie. Like Jagged Little Pill, Glenn Ballard assisted her with the album's production, and Maverick put the album out on their label. Those really remained the only similarities between the albums. The trip to India heavily influenced the record, especially on the songs Baba, Thank You, and The Couch. Baba features chanting, common in spiritual practices within various Indian religions, and in The Couch, the tabla is utilized. The tabla is a South Asian hand drum, perhaps the most popular percussive instrument in India. Thank You discusses the gratitude obtained during her time in that part of the world. In the song, she even thanks India by name. The edges found on Morissette's international mega-successful debut got smoothed out a bit on its follow-up. Supposed former infatuation junkie replaces its predecessor's somewhat gritty alternative rock backdrop with a more electronic foundation. The album also flirts at times with jazz, symphonic rock, and pop folk. In terms of success, if we don't compare supposed former infatuation junkie to Jagged Little Pill, then the former did quite well. 
The record debuted at number one in the United States, eclipsing Lauryn Hill's The Miseducation of Lauryn Hill as the all-time highest-selling album in its first week by a female act. To date, the album has peaked at number one in at least five countries and sold seven million copies. That's a lot of copies. Again, we're not going to compare the commercial success of this album to Jagged Little Pill. Okay, maybe just a bit. While in the aggregate, the five singles from supposed former infatuation junkie didn't quite achieve the same popularity as did the six singles from its predecessor, its lead single, Thank You, was a smash hit. It peaked in the top 20 on the Billboard Hot 100 and landed in the top 10 on the pop charts of countries such as Austria, Iceland, Italy, the Netherlands, New Zealand, Norway, Scotland, and her home country of Canada, where it peaked at number one. Aside from Thank You, supposed former infatuation junkie produced a couple of other minor hits, including Joining You, which enjoyed moderate success in Europe, and Unsent, which landed on the pop charts in the U.S., Australia, and New Zealand. Critics enjoyed supposed former infatuation junkie quite a bit. Rolling Stone gave the album four to five stars, praising the album's lead single, Thank You. They gave Morissette a humorous compliment, saying the song, quote, could have been a pretentious disaster, but instead it's a pretentious stroke of brilliance. Robert Criscow of The Village Voice graded the record as an A-, noting Morissette's evolution not only between the album's predecessor, but also alluding to her dance-pop origin, stating, quote, She's outgrown the bright appeal of pop the way she's outgrown the punky abrasions that gave the debut its traction off the blocks. Slant Magazine awarded the album four to five stars. The reviewer Sal Sinkemani praised the album's genre-bending, appreciating how, quote, the album runs the gamut from dance, pop, to rock and includes everything from dramatic string orchestrations to hip-hop loops and roaring electric guitars. 2002's Under Rug Swept will be the last album I'll mention before diving into the criteria for Morissette's signature song. Though she has released five albums since, Under Rug Swept is her last to go platinum in the U.S. and featured Hands Clean, her last major hit single which peaked at number 23 on the Billboard Hot 100. I wouldn't consider the album a poor effort in the slightest, though it comes across as an attempt to capture the Sheryl Crow or Vanessa Carlton pop rock vibes of the time. It's also just pretty safe, lacking the artistry of her previous two albums. That said, the album still peaked at number one in nine countries, including the U.S., and to date has sold around four million copies worldwide. Not too shabby, but obviously not great compared to Morissette's two predecessors with Maverick Records. While I might not hold the album in high esteem, critics certainly didn't despise the record. Blender Magazine awarded the album respectable 4 to 5 stars and even compared some of the more subdued parts of the album to the legendary Bonnie Raitt. Pitchfork gave the album a staggering 8.4 out of 10. As the album marked Morissette's first without the assistance of Glenn Ballard, Pitchfork commended her songwriting, stating, quote, The most marked effect of breaking away from Ballard's input is the unmitigated and highly concentrated ferocity of her lyrical confessions. Even with the success of Hands Clean, it's not a hot take to say Morissette's most interesting, endearing, and memorable work came from her two albums released in the latter half of the 90s. So while she released six albums in the 21st century, you'd be hard-pressed to find a casual Morissette fan that can name even just a handful of songs from that era. But the story of the 1990s? Well, that cannot be told without Alanis Morissette as one of the main characters. An icon of that decade, Alanis Morissette is, was, and will always be a 90s artist.
Before we name Alanis Morissette's signature song, it's important to identify her signature sound. As is tradition within each signature song episode, I listened to an anthology, this time of Morissette's 10 most streamed songs on Spotify released between 1995 and 2002. And unsurprisingly, seven of her top 10 songs come from Jagged Little Pill. With Morissette's diverse artistry, it posed a bit of a challenge finding commonalities in her music and lyrics across the board. But after listening to this anthology, a concrete artistic image emerged. Musically, Morissette borrows from multiple genres such as rock, pop, and folk and allows them to coexist through the use of acoustic guitar, electric guitar, harmonica, and drums. Morissette often inserts percussion in her songs via drum loops, though she is sure not to deprive listeners of the occasional dope fill. On the vocal side, perhaps the most signature Alanaism, if you will, has got to be her famous yodel. Music theory professor Drew Nobile points out that this yodel occurs at the conclusion of some phrases. He describes them as, quote, a sudden shift from chest voice to head voice on a neutral vowel, producing an effect that sounds like a cross between yodeling, sighing, and crying. In terms of lyrics, very few songwriters of her era compare to her talent. One thing I never noticed listening to Morissette growing up is her reluctance to compromise what's on her mind for the crowd-pleasing strategy of rhyming. While she does include wordplay from time to time, only occasionally will Morissette incorporate rhyming patterns generally found in popular music. Moreover, her artistic diversity isn't limited to genre bending, but also in her lyrical themes. However, in my humble opinion, at her best, her lyrics are personal, humorous, uplifting, self-reflecting, philosophical, understanding, and examine the paradoxes and contradictions of the human experience. So in choosing a signature song, I wanted to select a song that incorporates both acoustic and electric guitar, drum loops, and harmonica with strong examples of Morissette's vintage yodeling. Lyrically, I want to define a powerfully personal tune unrestricted by conventional lyrical tactics, full of compassion, contradiction, and humanity. Also, with Morissette's status as a cultural phenomenon stemming from the brilliance of Jagged Little Pill, the signature tune has got to be on that record. While it took me two months to align a song with that description as closely as possible, alas, I found it, and it's a doozy. I could have picked You Learn, the fourth single from Jagged Little Pill. The pop-rock radio-friendly hit became one of only two songs from Morissette to peak within the top ten of the Billboard Hot 100 at the peak position of number six. As I noted before, the song topped the pop charts in her home country of Canada and also hit the top 10 in Iceland and the Netherlands. You Learn currently ranks as Morissette's sixth most popular song on Spotify with over 63 million streams. I would consider much of the song vintage Alanis Morissette. The drum loops never falter, she yodels some, and the coexistence between electric and acoustic guitar survives throughout, though the acoustic guitar does get drowned out a little. Also, certain songwriting qualities shine for Morissette. Through her strong vocal performance, she conveys an uplifting message of growth through vulnerability and learning from making mistakes. Morissette stays true to her tendency of avoiding rhyming lyrics. Also notable, You Learn serves as the namesake for the album, as in the tune's first pre-chorus, Morissette cries, quote, swallow it down like a jagged little pill. She's basically saying here, making mistakes and taking risks can lead to pain, just as the throat experiences when swallowing medicine. But 
the rewards and lessons obtained from those mistakes and risks are worth it in the long run, just like the benefits of that hard-to-swallow pill. While I love the message of the song in that particular line, I struggle to connect with other parts of the lyrics. So it's a solid song, obviously, but it's lacking the lyrical depth, abundant, and many other tunes within the anthology I analyzed. Therefore, I cannot qualify You Learn as Alanis Morissette's signature song. Also, there's no harmonica anywhere. What the fuck? I could have picked Ironic, Morissette's most successful hit in the U.S. and her most popular song on Spotify. Her linguistically controversial classic peaked at number four on the Billboard Hot 100. It also cracked the top 10 in 11 different countries. To date, Ironic possesses north of 400 million streams on Spotify and 239 million views on YouTube. Musically, the song is ripe with Morissette's signature sounds. The acoustic guitar and electric guitar work in tandem in the iconic Earworm, in which Morissette blends rock, pop, and folk. That said, I don't really hear any of her famous yodels at any point in the song. And speaking of her vocals, amongst her popular tunes, I find Ironic most underwhelming. Morissette's unique timbre compensates for her occasional pitchiness. However, her pitch issues during the chorus of Ironic devalue her musicianship quite a bit in this particular tune. But no one wants to hear me talk about the music of the song, right? It's all about the decades-long debate as to whether Ironic is a misnomer. Over the course of the song, Morissette's Morissette presents 11 different scenarios that she implies are ironic. The controversy surrounding the song, can anyone really label those scenarios as irony? I read a few opinion pieces about this very important matter, and it seems people reside on both sides of this fierce debate. People clearly have given these lyrics a lot more thought than Morissette herself did when she wrote it. Reflecting on the song, she said, quote, That was one of the first songs we wrote, almost like a demo to get our whistles wet. In an interview with the Canada Broadcasting Corporation about the history of Jagged Little Pill, Morissette commented, quote, I think the malapropism and ironic was the only thing I regretted. I was like, oh God, if I knew more than 10 people were going to hear this, I would have been a stickler instead of being shamed publicly, planetarily for 20 years. For me, I don't take issue with the irony or lack thereof within the song. My problem with the song, the end of the third verse when she laments the irony of, quote, meeting the man of my dreams and then meeting his beautiful wife. I don't know why, but this pity party of a line makes me cringe and invalidates an otherwise decently written song. So yeah, I can't crown this one as Alanis Morissette's signature song. I could have picked Thank You from Morissette's fourth studio album, Supposed Former Infatuation Junkie. Easily the biggest hit from Morissette on an album not named Jagged Little Pill, the song has retained its importance to Morissette's fan base. With currently over 170 million streams on Spotify and 79 million views on YouTube. Driven by a steady piano progression, Morissette sings an anthem of gratitude, a feeling garnered following her massively successful tour in 1996. The subsequent absence of musical activities enabled her to reflect on the rewards earned from her booming career. She commented on that introspection, quote, I breathed. I was just left with an immense amount of gratitude and inspiration and love and bliss. Those sentiments inspired the first single from her first album post Jagged Little Pill. When I dove deeper into Morissette's work, I found the rawness of her songwriting captivating. With such personal and open lyrics, no one can ever accuse her of being disingenuous or catering to the zeitgeist of the times. In the song Thank You, it's that independent spirit that guides listeners through the emotions of a cultural phenomenon still very human. 
Lines like, quote, how about unabashedly bawling your eyes out? Or, quote, how about how good it feels to finally forgive you? Places Morissette's vulnerability against the backdrop of her thankfulness for inevitabilities of the human experience such as terror, silence, and clarity. The optic of her persevering through the complicated relationship between herself and her environment allows listeners to appreciate the personal growth that Morissette herself is appreciative of. So certainly Thank You is a songwriting gem and uplifting at its core. It also follows Morissette's sacred trait of avoiding rhyming. In terms of music, it's filled with her classic components. It's got the drum loops, the yodels, and electric guitar, albeit subtle. While the song is beautiful, wonderful, remarkable, and proud, Thank You lacks the grit of the signature Morissette sound, and instrumentally it lacks the acoustic guitar that Morissette always pairs so well with the electric. While those missing factors are legitimate, the real reason I never entertained Thank You as Alanis Morissette's signature song has nothing to do with its 4 minutes and 18 seconds. It has everything to do with where you find this fantastic piece of music, or rather, where you won't find the song. Supposed former infatuation junkie is a fine record, but the greatness of Jagged Little Pill defines the brilliance of Alanis Morissette, in turn forming an association that mustn't be separated. Therefore, the label of signature song simply cannot find itself attached to thank you. Also, no harmonica here either. What the hell? For my hot take of the episode, I could have picked, but didn't, the first single from Jagged Little Pill, You Oughta Know. There's no harmonica in this tune, so let's move on to the next one. Just joshing. Full disclosure, You Oughta Know not only remains my favorite of her songs, but in my humble opinion, it's probably an all-time top 10 90s song. The vengeful breakup song ignited the international explosion of Alanis Morissette. Even with its aggressive nature, the song peaked in the top 40 of the pop charts in Australia, Belgium, Canada, the Netherlands, New Zealand, Sweden, and the UK. While it didn't chart on the Billboard Hot 100 as an A-side, it did top the rock charts in July of 1995. Like ironic, debate ensued regarding the lyrics, as Morissette does not hide the theme of the song. She details the lingering anger stemming from a less-than-amicable breakup. Morissette famously gets harsh and personal with lines like, quote, It was a slap in the face how quickly I was replaced, and are you thinking of me when you fuck her? As well as, quote, and every time I scratch my nails down someone else's back, I hope you feel it. Well, can you feel it? Morrisette never officially confirmed the subject of the song, but the general consensus in the court of public opinion leads to Dave Coulier, the actor best known for starring in the hit ABC family comedy Full House. Coulier himself identified with You Oughta Know's antagonist, especially with the parts of the song when Morissette mentions bugging her ex in the middle of dinner, as well as characterizing him as an older version of her. While other candidates rumored for the tune's subject include Matt LeBlanc, Leslie Howe, and former NHL star Mike Peluso, I for one hope that Coulier is the villain and you ought to know, since I find the image of Uncle Joey getting blown in a movie theater while doing his Rocky and Bullwinkle impression rather amusing. Again, I'm very immature. While I find the abrasive lyrics memorable, the depth of the song's genius dives way deeper than its words. As I mentioned previously, 90s icons Dave Navarro and Flea's contribution to the song are immense. Flea throws in funky bass licks at every corner, and Navarro gifts listeners with a gnarly lead guitar part during the song's final chorus, which he executes without eclipsing Morissette's voice. The song does contain some of Morissette's signature components. 
Morissette flexes her yodel muscles at the conclusion of every chorus, giving prominence to her endearing and unique vocal commodity. The song also includes her instrumental tendencies of drum loops and crunchy electric guitar. In terms of writing in vintage Morissette style, as I noted, she gets personal as hell. However, Morissette commits the cardinal sin in this song detrimental to maintaining her signature songwriting tradition. She rhymes the lyrics, like, a lot. Also, while You Oughta Know is a fantastically written song, the ethos gravitates towards revenge, anger, and malintention, directly opposed to her signature lyricism of compassion, humanity, and contradiction. So while, within its controversy, catchiness, and chaos, it may represent Morissette's place in the heart of the 90s, I cannot in good faith place You Oughta Know as Alanis Morissette's signature song. Alrighty then, we have made it. The sacred epithet of signature song goes to the fourth song and second single from Jagged Little Pill, Hand in My Pocket. With roughly 170 million streams on Spotify, it ranks as Alanis Morissette's third most popular tune on that platform. Like essentially every other single on Jagged Little Pill, the folk rock classic charted immensely well worldwide upon release. It cracked the top 40 in Australia, Canada, France, Iceland, New Zealand, and the UK. While it didn't chart on the Billboard Hot 100, it did top the rock charts in October of 1995. From every angle and looking at every aspect of the singer-songwriter gem, it's a masterpiece plain and simple. But Morissette's body of work on this piece is far from plain and simple. Instrumentally, the clean-toned electric guitar partners with a brilliant acoustic bass line to set the song's peaceful mood. The tune does feature Morissette's signature drum loops. However, the time she spent with Flea must have influenced her a bit, as not only do the drum loops get interrupted at times by funky fills on the snare, but also, during the first instrumental section, the rhythm of the electric guitar becomes syncopated in true funk tradition. However, perhaps the two most important musical aspects of the song that elicit the label of signature song come from Morissette's unrelenting yodeling, as well as, finally, the use of the harmonica. Although none of the other candidates for signature song feature that instrument, Morissette uses it in some of Jagged Little Pill's most enduring classics, including Head Over Feet and All I Really Want. The reason I hold this tiny instrument in such large esteem within the discussion rests on its identity with esteemed singer-songwriters. Musicians such as Stevie Wonder, Woody Guthrie, John Lennon, Bob Dylan, and Neil Young are all singer-songwriting legends with some of their most iconic work featuring the harmonica. Alanis Morissette carried on the tradition so tastefully in hand in my pocket, further establishing herself as a singular singer-songwriter. Lyrically, the somewhat humorous tune eloquently describes the paradoxes of young adulthood. She showcases those paradoxes, juxtaposing her coming-of-age anxiety with the unearned confidences of youth. But amongst all the uncertainties she expresses, Morissette's self-awareness enables a spark of hopefulness that will help navigate her through the turmoil of such a precarious time. At the end of each chorus, which follows each verse, filled with contradictions such as, quote, I feel drunk but I'm sober, quote, I'm broke but I'm happy, and, quote, I'm brave but I'm chicken shit, Morissette explains that despite all the bullshit, everything's going to be okay, quote, because I got one hand in my pocket. She then tells what's going on with her other hand. Each action is different, mundane, and doesn't really reflect some greater meaning. That is until the final action when she says, quote, and what it all comes down to, my friends, yeah, is that everything is just fine, 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 because I've got one hand in my pocket and the other one is hailing a taxi cab. It might seem simple, but notice how Morissette changes the tense of the verb to be from the future to the present. 
I think that change in tense in conjunction with her call for transportation represents her abandoning speculation of her life, instead taking control of her destiny and leaving behind her youthful turbulence for the next stage of her humanity. So overall, the music nearly screams vintage Morissette through the marriage of electric and acoustic guitar, as well as drum loops galore, her famous yodel, and of course, her just absolutely shredding on the harmonica. As y'all probably would guess, when analyzing her work, I keep coming back to her songwriting. In Hand in My Pocket, the most important component of the lyricism of this ditty, she avoids rhyming. So while when you think of Alanis Morissette, you might picture three images of her in the backseat of a car singing ironic, or you might ponder for hours as to who the asshole ex-boyfriend in You Oughta Know could be. When I think of her, I think of a brilliant singer-songwriter who radically stayed true to their artistry while building on the energy and ethos of their predecessors. That's why what it all comes down to is that Hand in My Pocket is Alanis Morissette's signature song. I want to thank you all so much for listening. Be sure to check out the second part of this episode, released on Tuesday, December 19th. Y'all have a great rest of your day, and whenever it brings, hopefully music is involved. Again, I'm Dove Brenner, and this is Hot Cakes from a 90s stand. Take care.